Probably good we didn't try that one in the morning when we weren't warmed up, right? As we saw from our passage this morning, which we were reminded of uh, this evening as well in the scripture reading, clearly the early church gave to support various needs of members. But a question we would probably would be good for us to ask ourselves is, does the Bible have any other principles to help guide our understanding of giving? And the passage that we'll look at tonight is focused on directions for the early church as they were taking a special offering to meet needs along the lines of the ones that we looked at this morning from Acts 4 and 5. This special offering was something that Paul was very motivated to collect for the purpose of helping the poor in Jerusalem. And while the principles that he outlines were specific to that situation, I think that they certainly have application to our giving to the church in general. And as we turn here to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, there's two sorts of questions I think that this passage helps to answer for us. The first set of questions has to do with why should we give in an offering? And there's a variety of reasons why we might want to do this, hopefully right ones, such as to please God or to support the work of ministry. Sometimes, of course, there are uh, wrong reasons that we give, to be seen by other people or because we feel that we should do it only out of a sense of duty. The second set of questions has to do more with the practical nature. How should we give in an offering? What should an offering look like? Questions like how often, how much, how to handle the money when it's collected. We certainly won't answer all of those questions tonight, and particularly on the how much question. I think it's a larger discussion that I hope for us to look at together next Sunday evening. But at least for now, we'll get a start on understanding the answers to some of these questions. And so let's start by reading our passage together. It's a little bit of a longer passage, but I think it'll be helpful to look through it. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. And so we'll stop there for a moment. But why is it that Paul wants them to give toward this offering? Well, I think we see the answer First of all, is that we are to give because God gave Jesus. We see this in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And then also chapter 9 and verse 15, where it says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And so the thing that Paul uses to set the context for this offering for the poor in Jerusalem was the gift that God gave in Christ. Our giving is a reflection of God giving Christ to us. It's not to say that it's the same thing. We're not giving a person. We're giving of ourselves in various ways. It's not to say that we can in any way attain to the measure of God's gift because certainly Christ was a one time and an incomparable gift. Furthermore, it's not that we are to try to exceed or even match God's gift because we know that clearly we can't do that. And yet God giving Christ is an example of sacrificial giving that sets the context 
for the generosity that Paul was calling the Corinthians to. Why should we give? First of all, we give because God gave Jesus, but connected with that, we give as a sign of God's grace in and among us. We see this in verses 1 through 5 that we just read together. We see in verse 2, we see, oh, verse 1 says, the grace of God. Verse 2 says, in a great deal of ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So what do we see here is a connection between God's grace that was evident in their lives, that produced in them a joy in participating in God's work, that produced in them a willingness to give even sacrificially. But where does this begin? Verse 5, Not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. The only way that this is possible is first if we are properly related to God and to other people. And that is that certainly apart from a relationship with God, why would we have any desire to participate in the support of His work? And secondly, if we don't have a right relationship with other people in the assembly or in the church at large, we will have no desire to participate in this work either. And so Paul is describing here that giving is a sign of God's grace. We receive grace from God. This produces in us joy in God's work. That leads to giving, but all of that, the basis or the, the context for that is a proper relationship to God and a proper relationship to fellow believers. When we think more about giving because God gave Jesus, I think we also should think, that, think about the fact that our giving is motivated by love. We see this in verses 7 and 8. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, See that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. So I think in verse 7, what Paul is getting at is this idea that as they abound, as they mature in faith, that this motive of love drives what they are doing. Think about what it says in 2 Corinthians 5. Why is it that we take the gospel to other people? Because we recognize that God has bought us through Christ, that we are to be stirred by God's love toward us in Christ, and then that love drives us to take the gospel to other people. I think Paul's making a similar argument here. As you're abounding in everything, as you're growing in maturity, as your love is increasing, that will drive this sort of gracious work. And I think in verse 8, I don't think he's looking at it as a competition. Maybe in a vacation Bible school or some sort of competition like that, you have two teams and they're both seeing who's going to win and there's just sort of, you know, which one, is, which one of us is going to come out on top. I don't think that he's looking at it in quite the same sense from the perspective of this church looks at that church and says, we're doing better than you. I think what he's doing is he's saying that church is doing better than we are and that motivates us to do better in our service of God. And so I think that's why he cites the example of the Macedonians in the first part of the chapter because he's saying, hey, they are giving generously and graciously and you guys ought to do the same thing. And he's going to bring it back around as we continue through the chapter to something that they had already committed to do. In connection with that, he says... Uh, related to the idea of God giving Jesus, he says, give, I think, with generosity. We see this in verses 10 through 11. 
I give my opinion in this matter, verse 10, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire to do it, but now finish doing it also, just as so there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. So what does he say? He says, give with generosity, but how is that generosity characterized? First of all, that generosity is characterized by a freedom, a willingness. It's not somebody backing them into a corner and saying, you know what? Until you put this amount into the offering, you're not leaving here. It's nothing like that. Rather it is, they heard of the need, their hearts were stirred, and they were willing and committed themselves to give to support this project that Paul had put before them. What does he say further? I think he says in chapter 9 that stinginess is connected with less blessing. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his own heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. And as we look through here, I think Paul is stressing the fact that their gifts ought to be characterized by generosity because, and, and it's, not a, it's not a health and wealth kind of thing, it's not if you give this amount of money to the church or to a specific preacher or something like that, that God will give you ten times as much back. That's not the point. But the point is probably more the point that Jesus makes in some of his parables, and that is, if we're faithful in a little thing, God often grants us more to be faithful with. If we're unfaithful in a little thing, God often won't grant us more because we've shown ourselves not to be good stewards of what he's given to us. And so what does Paul say here in these verses? He says, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. We ought to do this willingly, readily, not out of a sense of necessity, because God wants us to do this cheerfully and for His glory. And if we do it in that way, God is able to provide not just what we need, but above and beyond that, verse 8, all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And it's interesting that in verse 10, he talks about this idea of a harvest of righteousness. In other words, Paul starts out talking about money, but I think he sort of broadens it to talk about all of our service, which is that if we are faithful in it, God will bless it, and we will see a harvest of righteousness. We will see not just material benefits, but more importantly, we will see lasting spiritual benefits for the people to whom we minister and for ourselves as well. Which, if you think back to Second Thessalonians, or rather First Thessalonians, when Paul was describing his ministry, he talks about this sort of effect. He talks about the fact that the Thessalonians had become so dear to him that he's willing to give not only of, of his time, but of his very self to minister to and encourage them. 
and there was such a close bond that it became like a family connection so that when he was torn apart from them, he was very concerned with how they were doing and with what God was accomplishing in their lives. I think that is related to what Paul describes here. Not only should generosity be free instead of by compulsion, not only should we recognize that stinginess, the opposite of generosity, potentially leads to less opportunity to bless others, but also, as we show generosity in the way that we live our lives, it provides an example that leads to action for others. Look at chapter 9 and verses 1 and 2. He says, It is superfluous or unnecessary for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So here's the scenario. Paul presented this project to the Corinthians. They said, yes, we want to do that. Time has elapsed. Paul talked to other churches about their zeal, their eagerness to participate in this project. And now he's coming back around them and he's saying, other churches have been stirred by your example. And he's going to say as we keep looking at this passage, so don't fail to follow through on what you had said because then they're going to be discouraged and the thing that I've been boasting about you will be found to be false. Rather, follow through on the generosity that your first impulse, as I presented this to you, led you to have. Give, most importantly, because God gave Jesus. That's sort of the context. Our reason for giving, our reason for living for God, all of that is set in the context of God giving Christ. We give as a sign of God's grace. We give motivated by love that is in some small part and a, a picture following after God's love for us in Christ. And we give with generosity. And certainly, when we consider the generosity with which God gave Christ to us, there's, there's nothing that we could do to live up to that, but it certainly sets for us a pattern of our ministry to others. But what's the practical result of giving? Why do we give, humanly speaking, or for what result on earth? And that is that we give to meet needs. Look at chapter 8 and verse 12. It says, For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according, I'm sorry, should be 9 and verse 12. Chapter 9 and verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Why do we give? We give to meet needs. We give to meet needs because it produces thanksgiving to God. So not only do we give because of what God has done for us in Christ, but we give to accomplish a specific objective here on earth, and that is to meet the needs of fellow saints. What does this look like? Turn back now, if you would, to chapter 8 and verse 12. We should give as God blesses us. Give as God blesses us. Look at chapter 8 and verse 12. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. 
what should this giving look like? What are some of the boundaries of it? I think Paul starts out by saying, give as God blesses. In verse 12, he says that means give from what you have versus what you might have. I might have a desire to support the work of missions, and I might say, I want to give $100,000 to missions. But if I don't have $100,000, I can have that desire all I want, but I can't actually accomplish it. That's the point that Paul's making. You give based on the fact that God has given you whatever it is. You give of what you have, not of what you think you might have or what you'd like to have or what you might have down the road. You give based on what you have right now. And what is the, the goal or the parameters for this? We see this in verse 13. It is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. So Paul's saying, there's poor people in Jerusalem. The goal is not... Let's say they have nothing, and you have whatever it is, a house and a car and all these sorts of things. He's not saying, you take all of those things, send it over to them in some way, and now they have all those things, and now you have nothing. The goal is not for you to swap spots. The goal is to make sure that their basic needs are met. I think that's what James talks about when he says, if you see a brother or sister in need, and you have the capacity to help them from this world's goods, and you say... I'll pray for you, brother. And you do nothing when you're able to do something. In what sense does the charity, the love of God, abide in you? But again, Paul's not saying that the goal is for you to say, here's what I've got, here's what you've got, let's just swap it. He's saying, make sure that their basic needs are met. Furthermore, I think he points out that this is, in some manner, cyclical. What I mean by that is verse 14, at the present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. You could potentially understand this in a spiritual sense, but given the context, I think Paul is essentially saying this. Right now, Corinthians, you're doing fairly well in terms of having what you need. The poor in Jerusalem aren't. But it can be that you having extra share with the poor in Jerusalem such that their need is met, such that down the road, perhaps as God blesses them and you find yourself in need, they can help you. Now notice he's not saying give so that you get back. He's saying give that so that as God has the ups and downs of life, you're helping someone here they have opportunity to help you later or to help someone else. And the goal overall is that the needs of God's people are met by God's people to the extent that that is possible. And we see this in verse 15. As it is written, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. What's that talking about? That's the gathering of the manna in the Old Testament. God poured it all out on the ground. What did they have to do? They had to go out and pick it up. Some people had a lot of it. Some people had a little of it. What was the point? Not that everyone had the same amount, that God met their needs. If you had a big family, you needed to pick up more manna. If you had a smaller family, you didn't need to pick up as much of it. But God gave them what they needed, and in the context of the manna, what they needed for that specific day, and He took care of them. And that's Paul's point. God is taking care of other people through you, and God will take care of you as well. Now, we have to put that in the context of 
the fact that we live in a world where it doesn't always seem like it works that way. Paul is describing, I think, the way that it should work, but we recognize that in our circumstances, there could perhaps be times where everyone in a church is going through a time of difficulty. Theoretically, you could be in a place where everybody works for the same company, that company closes, nobody in the church has anything. That's where I think Paul's example of this, yes, ideally being in the context of the church, but in his example, it's not just in the context of the church. He's saying, here's a church in a completely other part of the world that's helping the church in this place that has need. And so again, I think that uh, it has application to what's taking place within our local assembly. But Paul's larger point is that these things may be happening at different points in different countries and different places around the country. And the goal would be that God's people would not be in need to the extent that he has blessed other churches and they're able to help a church that is in need or to the extent that he blesses us, we help another church that's in need. The point is that God provides what is needed. Furthermore, I think that we are to give with wisdom. To give with wisdom. Those who oversee this gift must be trustworthy. We'll start in verse 16, but I think the main point comes a little bit later. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying a lot of churches are giving a fair bit of money and resources, and so we need to have someone who is trustworthy to make sure it gets from where it's being given to where it needs to be distributed. In this case, Paul is sending Titus and several others to administer this gift in such a way that there will be no question that this is not someone who just sort of popped up and said, hey, I'd like to handle a large sum of money. This is someone who has proven character and that they are committing it to with the expectation that it will get to where it's supposed to go. Now, obviously, there's risks involved. There's risks of robbers. There's risks of something being lost at sea, all of these sorts of things. There's certainly risks involved, but to the extent that Paul looks at the character of the men who are entrusted with this responsibility, he's confident that so much as it lies in their power, they're going to get it to where it's supposed to go. And so again, I think there's a principle here that we ought to give with wisdom. The people who oversee the, the gift ought to be trustworthy. The manner of handling the gift, furthermore, ought to be honorable. Verse 21, For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. It's a practical example. Why do we usually have two people count the money? Because we trust the people who are counting the money, but we also know that there's people who could come up to the church and they could say, you only got one guy looking at that? How do you know that he's not taking a little bit out for himself? Again, even if we trust the character of the people who are involved, it's wise to take precautions against the temptation of sin. And so just as a practical example, this was the sort of thing that they had in mind, having regard for what was honorable not only in God's sight, but also in the sight of men. And as we finish down through the chapter, 
We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but even now more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and our reason for boasting about you. So Paul clearly is sending not just one person, but several, both for reason of safety and for reason of this being an honorable handling of the gracious gift that was being sent. So we ought to be giving to meet needs as God blesses us according to wisdom, not just what is acceptable within the walls of the church, but what is considered acceptable in the handling of such things more broadly speaking. And we ought to give with preparation. This has less to do with who is handling the gift and more with the state of our hearts and our actions in preparing for the gift. Chapter 9 verses, um, or uh, chapter 16, rather, of 1 Corinthians. Develop this a little, a little bit further. Let me uh, read that for you. 1 Corinthians 16 says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I direct to the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. And so there's a measure in which Paul wanted them to be prepared. We see this also in the passage we're looking at right here. He said in verse 5, So I thought it necessary of chapter 9 to urge the brethren they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. And so Paul is essentially saying here, I think, plan what you will give. We see that, saw that in 1 Corinthians 16. We see this in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 2. Your readiness, the thing that you have expected to do. And then he's saying, follow up on it. So if you've made a commitment, also follow through on it in a timely way. I think that's what he's saying before we come, uh, get ready, have this all together so that we're not delayed waiting because someone says, wait, I didn't want to give that much, or they're motivated by covetousness, uh, comparing themselves with another church. He says, get it ready before I come so that it's ready to go. So we give because God gave Christ. That's the underlying motive. We certainly can't live up to that example but if God gave us all that we need spiritually, then that affects our perspective on everything in life, including what we have materially. We give in order to meet needs. The need in this specific context was the relief of the poor saints in Jerusalem. And Paul urged the Corinthians to give as God blessed them, to give wisely, and to give having prepared themselves. And then finally, I think we see from this passage that Paul encourages these saints to give in order to keep or live up to God's expectations and to fulfill your commitments. Why do I say that? We see this in several places. Chapter 8 and verse 6, We urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would complete in you this gracious work as well. Chapter 8 and verse 11, But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. And then chapter 9 and verse 5. Arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so the same would be ready as a bountiful gift. 
part of the ministry of the church involves commitments to people both within and without. This includes people that are employed by the church and those that the church is supporting, such as our missionaries and for some churches, various other Christian organizations. And so we could break this down into two categories. One would be necessity. The thing that Paul emphasizes here is, if you've made a commitment, follow through on that commitment. Why is that important? It wouldn't say that this necessarily falls into the category of a vow, like a marriage vow or vows that were made in the Old Testament about offerings to the temple. And yet, if we make a commitment, it's something that we ought to take seriously because there's a certain extent to which every commitment, every statement that we make is given in God's sight, which is why Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you don't come under judgment. We shouldn't be in the habit of making promises and not living up to them. So Paul is saying here, give what you had promised to give. Furthermore, I think that there is also the aspect of a goal. What should we be working toward? Our goal, I think, would be to give what is needed for various ministries of the church. Let me read for you another passage from Corinthians, specifically from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things, so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who who attend regularly to the altar, have their share from the altar, so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So what does this look like in the context of churches today? I think that, at least from that passage that we just read, as well as from 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, and Galatians 6, 6-10, churches in the New Testament were admonished to support those who ministered to God, God's word to them. Now, we recognize that this is not always viewed as a full-time sort of position. There are churches uh, in which pastors may have multiple jobs by choice. Sometimes someone who's retired will say, you know what, I'm going to fill the pulpit for you, but God's taking care of me in other ways, so I don't expect you to pay me. And I don't think that the church has to say, well, but we're going to pay you anyway. It's not a mandate. Some may have multiple jobs by necessity. But either way, the goal is to meet needs adequately, though not extravagantly. So I think there's kind of two sides of this. From my perspective, my goal would be, as the church provides for me and my family, to use that wisely, to earn my keep instead of be lazy, to uh, recognize that expenses increase for everyone, and so it's not reasonable for the pastor to say, hey, I should be way up here even if everybody else is struggling. Like I said, sometimes things happen in a particular town or with particular jobs and all those sorts of things. All of us together must be wise about what God provides. I think there is a New Testament pattern for the church to support pastors. I think there is also a New Testament pattern for the church to support missionaries. We see this in 1 Corinthians 9 that we just looked at. 
We see this in 2 Corinthians 11. We see this in Philippians 4 and in 2 Corinthians 12. In all those passages, Paul is talking about one of two things. He's talking about, here's the churches that supported me, or here's the churches that I did not have support me, because I was concerned that because of some of the things going on in them, they would be confused about why I was there, so I did not accept support from them. And so we see at least two things from all those passages. Some missionaries may not accept support. Paul chose not to accept support when he was at Corinth, at least temporarily, because he did not want to confuse the gospel. He did not want them to think, here's Paul, he showed up because he wants our money. Perhaps someone might be starting a church in a place that's been burned by people who have done the whole thing, you send me money uh, online or over the phone, give me your credit card number, God will do all these things for you. Maybe someone's ministering in a context where a lot of people have experienced that, and the person going in that context says, you know what, I'm going to do the same thing that Paul did, I'm going to get support from another church coming in there, so there's no question about why I'm there. And as the people see his character and get to know him better, then he starts to say, okay, I will take advantage of what is rightfully owed in this situation. But even if someone chooses to do that, Paul doesn't say the right evaporates. He says, I choose not to exercise that right. And so with regard to missionaries, they have a full right to support. And I think from the perspective of churches, we do missionaries a disservice, we do wrong to them, if we don't follow through on those sorts of commitments. So what sorts of things are involved in that? Hopefully budgeting wisely, hopefully accounting honestly, both on our part and theirs, them to say what their needs actually are, us to do our best to meet those needs, obviously recognizing usually we are one part of a number of churches that are supporting a given missionary. So there's a New Testament pattern for supporting pastors, for supporting missionaries, clearly for supporting special projects because that's what this whole passage is about. Here's a specific need of a specific church or group of churches. Let's give to support that. What about parachurch organizations? Uh, my response to that would be that I don't necessarily see any sort of New Testament precedent for it, but I don't know that it's automatically condemned. But here's the thing that I would say. You will get phone calls all the time from any number of groups saying, we'd like your money. And I think the thing that we have to do is we have to prioritize. We have to say, what are the things that we must do versus what are the things that we'd like to do? And so when it comes to supporting our church, if we say, our missionaries are going to fail to have the support that they need because I gave money to whatever good organization called me on the phone, I think we'd have to say, that's a misplaced priority. I need to fulfill this other commitment, this other responsibility. So, we give because God gave Christ. We give in order to meet needs. Uh, in Paul's example, it was the need of the poor in Jerusalem. In the context of our churches, there is a variety of needs that we give in order to meet. We give to fulfill God's expectations, which is that there is a right support for those who minister in the gospel, and our commitments, which are the promises that we've made to different people in connection with their ministry. These principles of giving, I think, help us to have a proper motivation and a mindset for how to approach giving in the church. Specifically, the context in which these chapters are set is a special offering, but I think they have application more broadly to our giving in the church. And then, there's always a tension when somebody speaks about these things, 
given where I'm at. And that is, it may sound self-serving for me to say, you should give to the church, because that's how God provides for my needs. But the thing that I am, the, the reason I bring these things before you is not to focus on that, because you've been faithful to provide for our family, and I trust as God provides for you, you'll continue to do that. The thing that I want to focus on is to ask ourselves, what are we doing in light of these principles for those who serve us as our missionaries? Obviously, there's different systems of support for missions that have been put forth at different points in the past. And not in every church, but in many churches, those systems have been practiced in a way that, quite frankly, in my mind, those systems worked when they stirred up people's emotions or their guilt or perhaps misrepresented what faith in God looks like. And I recognize that you could take something that is misused at one place and bring it to another place and not misuse it necessarily. But that being said, I think that it is best to look at missions in light of the overall work that God is accomplishing in the church. Not as its own category off to the side, but as part of the entirety of the church's mission. Let me illustrate it this way. In the church, one of the things that we ought to do is to have fellowship with one another. And so we could theoretically say we're going to make fellowship its own category and we're going to raise money for it in a different way than we do everything else in the church, but we haven't done that historically. Or we could say, you know what? We think that worship is something that's important. And so if we say we want to support... Um, uh, learning new songs, maybe at some point we have to buy new hymnals or something to help us to sing, uh, replace a piano, something like that. We say, okay, we're going to make that its own category and we're going to support worship by making it a separate category that's not part of a regular budget. In, our, in the case for our church, missions has, to a certain extent, been its own category separate from the rest of the budget. My concern about that is there's a couple of parts to it. One is, if we make a commitment to our missionaries, we need to follow through on it. And so if we make a commitment to our missionaries based on what we think God might provide us over the next year versus based on what he has actually provided, in other words, when you make a budget, you look and you say, all right, here's the amount of money I got in the last year. Sometimes if you're conservative, you'll say, okay, let's go 5% under that. All right, here's my budget for this next year. Here's my expenses. Here's what's coming in, all of these sorts of things. And we make projections based on those sorts of things. If we have more than that, that's great. If we don't, or we fall short a little bit, we're still in a good spot. I think that's how we should approach making budgets for the church, generally speaking. When it comes to missions... I think we ought to have a similar approach. If I'm going to tell a missionary, we're going to give you $100 a month, then that needs to be a collective commitment of the entire church such that we fulfill that obligation, that responsibility. And so I think that we ought to include the amount that we give to missions as part of our regular budget. And to the extent that God blesses us, we can say, oh, what? You know what? We are this amount over what we had budgeted for the year, and we can, as a congregation, uh, make a decision to use that money to put it in a fund for a special project, to distribute it at the end of the year, something like that. But 
I think the starting point is make sure that we are meeting the obligations, the commitments that we've made to our missionaries. Because if we, if we fail to keep those commitments, we put our missionaries in a bad spot and we give a bad testimony of our care and concern for them. So I say all these things to get around to the point which is this. We have operated under a faith promise or a modified faith promise system over the past number of years here at the church. And what I would like us to consider doing as a congregation is moving away from that to the extent that we instead include the amount that we are giving to missions as part of our regular budget. To put that very simply, let's say that there are two amounts that you give in any given month. And one amount is the amount that you would consider your tithe or your offering to the church, and the other amount is the amount that you've given to faith promise. All I'm simply saying is that we combine those two amounts and include those so that we can track it more easily in the church budget and make sure that we are doing a good job fulfilling those commitments. I'm not saying give less. I'm not saying stop giving. All I'm doing is saying let's make it simple and clear and honorable in not only the sight of God but in all men in the way that we approach all these things to make it that we are fulfilling the commitments that we've made to our missionaries. And I think that as we look through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I think that that would fit with the principles that Paul laid out for us there as well. Now, I recognize that this would be a, a shift from what we've done in the past. And so I want us to look um, specifically, I said at the beginning, we talked about this idea of the amount that we give. And that's a big question in the, in the minds of a lot of Christians. And so that's something that I want us next Sunday night to look at in more detail. What did it look like in the Old Testament in various stages? What can it look like in the New Testament? And help that be a part of this discussion. And then the further step that I'd like us to do is on November 4th in the evening, I'd like to do a Q&A to talk about some of these things, to see what questions or concerns you might have with what I've proposed, which is to move away from faith promise, to incorporate in our missions giving as just a part of our regular budget. And my hope would be that this would be something that would help us to, uh, to simplify, to be clear about what it is that we're doing, and to honor God in the way that we approach our giving. Again, the focus of this passage, and I think the focus of our giving in general is this. God has blessed us in many ways. God's not trying to put us in a corner and say that you have to starve so that someone else can have way more than you do. I mean, that's clearly laid out in the passage. God says instead... Here's a need connected with ministry. How are we going to meet it in an honorable way, in a diligent way, in a wise way? Just like Paul took up this collection for the poor in Jerusalem, we ought to handle the support of our missionaries and all of our obligations as the church in a way that will be handled properly and that will bring honor to God. And so that is what I would like to propose for us. And I trust you'll be thinking over these things over the coming weeks. And as you have questions or thoughts, I would encourage you to share those with me privately or as we come to the Q&A time in two weeks. And uh, let's close this section in prayer. Lord, you've called us to give of ourselves. It's so easy for us to be selfish, to be stingy, to try to ignore needs that we see around us. Lord, we're all guilty of that at different points. And Lord, some of us are probably on 
on the end of the spectrum that we'd be willing to give somebody the shirt off our back, even if it means we have uh, barely anything left. And maybe some of, of the others of us are on the end of the spectrum where we say, I'm not willing to give anything. And hopefully all of us are rather more somewhere in the middle. Lord, I don't know everyone's hearts. I don't know everyone's history along these lines, nor do I need to. But Lord, I, I, I pray that you would help us to apply these principles in such a way that the way that we work to support your ministry here and around the world would give testimony to your presence in and among us. That we would do all these things in a way that honors you. That we would do all these things in a way that accomplishes your work as simply and effectively and clearly as possible. Lord, these are things in which we need wisdom. I pray that you might give us that wisdom. I pray that you might give us unity of purpose that we would seek to accomplish your work as you have called us to do and that you would be glorified in it. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.